we're building something that is going to make wrong decisions and a patient is going to have a bad outcome. And that's going to be on us because it's our technology. And we took that really seriously. And, and it was something that we did a lot of soul searching about. And, and where we got to with it is, do we feel like we're actually making a, the pathway better, the experience better, so that the net effect is there's a positive outcome versus the single person that, that gets a worse outcome because of our system? Neil Daly is the founder and CEO of Skin Analytics, a company which uses AI to detect skin cancer. Neil started Skin Analytics in 2012 after working extensively in mobile innovation and strategy consulting. They've raised a total of $9 million to date. If detected early, melanoma can have a 99% survival rate, which dramatically decreases the later it's picked up, creating a very important opportunity for companies like Skin Analytics. But there are some important caveats to clear up. For example, I ask Neil, whose fault is it when the algorithm misses a cancer, the doctors or the algorithms? I also ask if algorithms are unfairly held to a higher standard than human doctors, and we speak about the inner workings of the skin analytics algorithm, as well as how it broke away from some of the conventional thinking and did its own thing. I hope you enjoy. So can you tell me a bit about the origin story of skin analytics, how it came about, and if there were any early decisions that went into it that were quite pivotal? I grew up in Australia and you know, skin cancer is kind of our national cancer. We're almost proud of it. It's considered to have a very, very high incidence to be around uh, sort of 40 per 100,000 in terms of an incidence of of melanoma. We've got some parts in Australia that are over 70 uh, patients per 100,000 that end up with melanoma. So it's, you know, we're really good at making it, to be honest. Uh, And so I grew up with all the public health messages that were were out in the 80s. And there's some really great campaigns that that every once in a while we dig out and share with people around slip, slop, slap in in the sunshine. Uh, So it's always been in the back of my mind. And then, uh, you know, I I generally don't talk about these sorts of things. But, you know, in my family, there's been some some sort of health problems in and around cancer and then a a friend of mine. uh, and, And so always in the back of my mind, I've wanted to do something that could make a difference and, and that mattered to me. And it felt like being able to solve a problem that uh, that actually disproportionately affects younger people really mattered to me. So the, the, when the opportunity came along to say, okay, I want to I sort of try and do something in healthcare because that's what I really like. What do I know? Well, I've got a maths and physics background. I kind of get this, uh, this AI side of things that's emerging. I really feel like there's some benefit in trying to create capacity by using computers to do some of the things that we could only do with with humans before. And then it just sort of snowballed from there. Um, But we did take some really important decisions early on that have really colored uh, us as a company. And I think they weren't necessarily as popular now. They seem like no-brainers now and everyone talks in this language. But at the time, it was considered to be a little bit uh, conservative or or maybe not the right strategy. So firstly, we, we said... We're only going to work with high quality data. So we're going to pair histopathology outcomes with the images that we have to work with. And that's going to mean that instead of having hundreds of thousands of images, we're going to have a fraction of that. And then we're going to have to figure out all the technical challenges to try and apply artificial intelligence to that so that we don't, so that the the technology works. And that's actually where a lot of our IP is, is, is really scaling the networks and building from the ground up to make sure they're designed in a way to solve the problem that we have. It's different to try and tell the difference between a traffic sign and a beach than it is to tell the difference between a malignant lesion and a benign lesion. Um, and so the network design architecture is different. And so, so that was a kind of a key decision for us to say, we're willing to take the technical risk and try and overcome that. Um, 
rather than say, okay, we have to work with as much data as we can get because that's just how AI works. So that was one of them. Uh, the second one was we, uh, we decided early on, we're not an app. We're not going to be distributed through app networks. We're not just a sort of glitzy consumer toy. We're something that fits within the clinical pathway. And we want to take the responsibility of being part of the clinical journey for a patient. Uh, and at the time when we made that decision, everyone was going out on the app store. Everything was an app. And it, it just like the feedback I had got was how could you be planning a distribution strategy that doesn't give you the entire world immediately. Like and you're making a crazy set of decisions, um, but it allowed us to say, okay, we want to be part of the clinical pathway and we want to use a dermoscope to get these higher quality images that allow us to be better at the diagnostic aspect of it. Uh, all of that strategy sort of tied in together when you're not considering yourself to be an app. And then the third and final thing that we leaned into that was really pivotal for us is that, and it tied into this sort of app strategy is, you know, we want to be, we want to be a clinical product, then you're a medical device and there's no way around it. So you need to lean into the medical device regulations and adopt them uh, and not just see them as a box that you can tick and then get approval to sell, but you have to embed it into the company from the ground up. So we've got a, a regulatory director in our business who's, you know, just fantastic uh, that has, has really you know, it has been tasked with, okay, help us meet these regulations, but also help us take all the really good stuff out of the processes you need to, to build in to meet the regulations and figure out how to make that a competitive advantage for us so that we can build high quality products faster than our, our sort of uh, uh, competitors, if you like, because we really sort of lean into it. And I think those three decisions were kind of core to who we are as a business. We made them a number of years ago and they're now kind of accepted as what you should do. But it, it, I think it was kind of our, our secret source to date. I know the two are so intertwined to the point where this is possibly a bit of a stupid question, but if you had to make that dichotomy between this is our value, this is our data set, and this is the kind of algorithm, and here are the percentage values of each one, um, if it's even possible to answer that question, what would you, what would you say to that? 20% data, 80% algorithm. Uh, I, I personally feel like there's a massive misconception that... AI is a data game. I mean, clearly the data is important and it is in most things. When you're making decisions on anything, more data, you're going to make better decisions. But uh, I, I would say that the reality is that the more data that you get and the more understanding you get about the AI and the more chance you have to optimize and really build out something that, that helps clinically, the more complex it is. I make a terrible analogy, uh, and I need to get a better one about golf. Like I think, I think everyone knows golf's one of those really frustrating games. So you can pick up a golf club, you can hit the thing around. I actually don't play golf, so I'm guessing uh, you hit the thing around, and you can sort of get to a level where you can have a bit of fun. But if you want to be any good at it, you've got to spend like a lifetime working on it. And I think that's where we are with AI. And that may not matter. It may not be important if you're suggesting what the next film that someone might like want to watch with AI. Um, but when you're making clinical decisions, it does matter. Like a, a, a small change in performance makes a huge difference, especially when you think about at what part of the, the, the operating curve AI works at, because you're always trying to optimize sensitivity and specificity. You're working at the very top range of sensitivity, which means a very small change has a very big impact on your specificity or your, your ability to discharge patients. And so the performance is, is all, all important. Um, and I think that that takes a lot of work. Uh, so I'm, I'm a bit biased, but I think it's 80, 20 to, to the, the algorithms. Neil, if I was you, I think what would keep me up at night is just the problem with 
needing to have really high sensitivity and just not to miss things, not never to miss a cancer, right? And that is a bit unfair because in AI, there's almost like a higher standard, right? If a dermatologist missed something, it wouldn't make the news. If you miss something, it'd probably be a huge thing, like a Hindenburg moment. Um, does that keep you up at night? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, and you know what? Uh, on the more human side of things, just to just introduce it, one thing that clinicians are trained to deal with that, that those of us who work in health tech that aren't clinicians haven't been is that you guys make decisions about patients that end in bad outcomes. And sometimes it's a decision that you can tra track back to that you've made and you could have made better. And sometimes it's just outside of your control, but you know that there are going to be patients with bad outcomes and you're trained to deal with that. Um, we had to have a really open, honest conversation in amongst the team, especially our head of AI, Jack, to say, we're building something that is going to make wrong decisions and a patient is going to have a bad outcome. And that's going to be on us because it's our technology. And we took that really seriously. And, and, and uh, you know, it, it was something that we did a lot of soul searching about. And, and where we got to with it is, do we feel like we're actually making a, the pathway better, the experience better, so that the net effect is there's a positive outcome um, versus the single person that, that gets a worse outcome because of our system. And, and it's not an easy thing to deal with, but um, it's something that we, we've had to sort of really train ourselves to around and make sure that the mental health of our team is sort of looked after as they consider their role in building a system that is going to have that sort of outcome. So putting, putting that human aside, bit aside first, um, you know, I think, yes, it does keep me up and, and you're trading off your ability to find a disease, the cancer, and, and versus your ability to deliver value to a health system that's overworked. And I think the way we deal with this is we have an external clinical advisory committee of dermatologists um, internationally and within the UK and a public health expert um, and health economics expert. And we, we get together as a group and say, what's the right trade-off? Are we making the right trade-offs? Are we approaching this the right way? Uh, and that helps, helps us make sure that we're, we're doing that. Um, and that we're, we've got the right goals. But the, the other thing that we do is when we built the medical device, we, we built it so you can configure the sensitivity specificity trade-off as part of the device. So we go in with our partners and say, okay, we know that a dermatologist typically in the literature finds 92% of melanoma that they see first time. What, what sensitivity do we want for melanoma? And we can configure that. And then we can say, okay, with that in mind, what sensitivity do we want for squamous cell carcinoma and basal cell carcinoma? And we work our way down that list and we can and configure the algorithm to do that. And then we can have an informed discussion with them, with our partners to say, okay, this is what the discharge, potential discharge benefit looks like. Is that sufficient? Have we got the right trade-off? Uh, so it's, it's very much, we see ourselves as partners um, with the, the sort of clinical uh, teams that we work with rather than sort of prescriptively saying, this is what you're going to get from a performance perspective. Um, but we always want it to be above 95% on, on all lesion types. And that's generally above what the literature suggests that, that, um, that we can expect uh, across a pathway for clinical teams. If I was a general practitioner, a primary care doctor, and I started using your tool, the first thing I would ask is, okay, this is great, but if it gets it wrong, whose fault is it? Is this my responsibility? Is this going to be on your head? Like, wh where's the blame? Yeah, so, I mean, I guess... That's a tricky question and, and we get asked it a lot and um, I, I don't think it's, it's definitive in terms of what the answer is. But I guess the principle that matters the most and where we start is, you know, at Skinalytics, as, as I mentioned before, we want to be involved in the clinical pathway and we're willing to 
um, acknowledge that that means that we wear responsibility for the decisions that we take and we help people get to. Um, and each of our pathways is designed, as I mentioned, with our partners and the AI plays slightly different roles. Sometimes it's more um, supporting a decision from clinicians that may be trained to make those decisions. Sometimes it's, it's, uh, uh, it's sort of more autonomous in terms of it makes a decision with a patient for discharge a patient that may not be reviewed by dermatologists. And, and we can only do that because of the huge amount of data on performance that we have. But at the end of the day, we say we're not shying away from our responsibility and liability within a pathway. So when, when you sort of start from that principle of, okay, you know, we're not trying to shy away from it, we have pretty productive conversations with our partners. And the reality is when it comes to healthcare, when you get to the discussion around liability, it almost doesn't matter what people say about it. Each and every person involved in that pathway, their decision has to be deemed reasonable by a group of outside experts if it ever got to the point of saying, you know, was the right decision made? Well, the outside experts look at what happened, what information was available at each point along that journey, was the right decision made? And, you know, I think that's a really healthy place to be. Uh, and we're, we're quite comfortable working within it. So uh, long way of saying it, it varies by partner, but, um, but we do take liability and, and uh, we do try and make sure that we've, we invest heavily in a sort of clinical safety. Another one of our management team is, uh, is, a, is our clinical safety officer. And we're always thinking about ways things can go wrong for patients and putting mitigations in place to try and minimize that just as you do in any clinical service that you design. I wanted to ask a little bit about how your algorithm is designed. And I think you'll have to correct loads of assumptions I'm making here, but I read a really landmark paper. I think it's from 2017. It's the nature paper in which they look at a skin AI tool and they compare it to dermatologists in diagnosing, I think, malignant melanomas, and they find that it's basically equivalent. In that tool, they do something which a lot of these algorithms do, which is use transfer learning. So they use a pre-trained model, which has been trained on things like images of like cats and roads and toys. And I think the point is that this algorithm has been trained to identify basic things like lines and what skin, what's an eyebrow, what's, what's blue, what's red. That's come from this data set of random objects like cars and toys. And then we just go and fine tune it. So we add a bit more data to it. And now it's able to identify skin cancers. From what I've seen on your website, it looks like you don't use that. So you don't use transfer learning and you've kind of gone from the ground up. And I wanted to ask, firstly, is that assumption correct? And what went into that decision, basically? Yeah, I mean, as with every question you've asked me, I've got a little side note before. <laughs> uh, so uh, one of the authors on that paper is a guy called Justin Coe, who's uh, head of dermatology at, um, at Stanford. And um, I got in touch with him after he wrote the paper and, and sort of said, hey, really amazing work. You know, this is what we do. This is how we're approaching it. And we just got on like a house on fire. So he's actually one of our clinical advisory committee members and one of our advisors, um, you know, helps us think through how do you take the principle which they showed in that paper and then apply it to, to the real world. And I think one of the challenges with that paper was that approach that they took actually doesn't translate that well to the real world because you're, you've got these networks. And, and again, I'm going to paraphrase my, my um, head of AI, Jack, is probably going to be uh, mortified at what I say here. But you have these networks that are really large and you, you need these this transfer learning data sets, these huge data sets to sort of train the algorithm. Uh, and then you give them something like uh, skin cancer, where you've got relatively few degrees of freedom between a benign and, and a malignant lesion compared to you know, a tree and a stop sign, as I was sort of saying before, like you're now having these networks that are just way too large for the problem that you're trying to solve. And that sort of creates all sorts of issues. 
We do actually use transfer learning. It's not that we don't use transfer learning. It's just we didn't start with the, the Google Inception network or, um, you know, we actually did start with that years ago. Uh, and we actually had um, the, one, the preceding ones that we worked with. Um, so the one from Oxford and a few others that we used to sort of bundle together. But what we, what we realized is that that approach of using these other networks, they're just not designed for the same problem. So when we say we built it from the ground up, it's we, we changed the network architecture. We still use a lot of things like transfer learning. In fact, you know, I think uh, I think we got a blog article uh, where we talk about ice creams and and uh, um, kebabs being sort of a, a key part of us helping to find skin cancer because, as you say, you know, a, a lot of the data that uh, that seems nonsensical is needed to to pre-train these networks because we as humans have grown up collecting information. Uh, that helps us understand what the world looks like. And then we're asking these AI systems to come from nowhere. You need to give them some of those background parameters as well. Um, so we do, do use transfer learning. Um, and a little funny story on this, we were in a co-working space back when we were, were doing it. And uh, when we started doing some of this transfer learning and we got the data set for it and everyone was using uh, ImageNet, which is this massive collection of images that I think it started in Stanford and, and Princeton or something like that, where it was labeled. Um, but we realized in the GDPR days that we weren't sure that the proprietary rights were given for that, those images to be used. And so we didn't want to use them in our training. So we said, OK, we're going to go out and find data sets that we can use. And so we joined things like Flickr and a bunch of other things where you could get the right licenses. And we started downloading huge amounts of data. And then we got the entire co-working office banned from a bunch of sites that we were collecting data from uh, because we, we, we hadn't done anything wrong, but the, the, you know, their automated tools had picked up this huge data downloads and sort of blocked everyone for about three or four months. So we were hugely unpopular for a while. Neil, can you help explain to me what is wrong or what, what limits come into place if you use something like ImageNet to start off with? Because to me, it looks like, hey, let's not reinvent the wheel. This thing does these things quite well and we can just fine tune it a little bit and bam, we can diagnose skin cancer. Like where, where, where do the limitations come in? So I, I think the limitations come in when you, yes, they're fantastic. You know, they're, they're just incredible algorithms and the data does exist and reinventing the wheel doesn't make sense. But I think what you see is that there is a very large and recognized drop in performance from the lab into the real world for many AI systems in healthcare. And that performance drop, as we talked about earlier, is just critical in healthcare. You, you know, dropping 10, 20, 30% of performance is, is catastrophic for, for care because you have expectations of what that, that care needs to be. And, and, you know, where that, that drop comes from in, in our opinion, and I don't think it's quite this simple, but when you have a, a, a sort of a huge network and you don't have a huge data set, you know, so the clinical image data set that you have is not as significant. These networks are so big, they almost memorize the data that you've got. And then you're sort of optimizing a system for the data that you've got to train it rather than the real world data. So it starts learning the wrong things. And so, you know, I think that's why we've had such great success on, on sort of building our networks because we, you, you know, we were able to, to make sure that we balance out all of the different inputs and constraints that we have, which are actually different to something like Google Inception Network and because there's just so much data for them, uh, that the output of our algorithm is really resilient to 
what we saw in our observational paper, what we saw in our perspective study, and then what we saw in the real world, they're actually pretty much the same thing. And that's, I think that's because of the network design. I want to ask a bit about where you fit into the pathway of healthcare. And from looking over, I thought there were three places. So you can either be number one, like a direct to consumer tool, which we kind of spoke about, where patient checks themselves, and they go straight to a dermatologist if they need to, you kind of miss out the GP step. Second one is it's, it's used as a tool by the GP to then decide if it needs referral or further intervention. And the last one could be that actually dermatologists use it as a second set of eyes just to make sure their decision uh, is legit. Um, and I wanted to ask A, where you found you fit in and where you found success and B, even looking into the future where you think you might go, whether that might change. Yeah, I mean, I think you, you hit the nail on the head on the different ways that you can use it. And, you know, I think where we want to get to in the long term uh, is we have a capacity constraint in clinicians. Someone said this to me the other day, and I really like this. It takes 15 years to make a specialist, but it takes nine months to make a patient. So we have this disconnect between the ability to make very difficult decisions around care and the demand that's coming through. And in dermatology, I think we're 25% understaffed in in the UK. It's up to 50% in the US. There's just not enough specialists. So what we want to do is make it so easy to get a skin cancer assessment um, that everyone's doing it all the time and we find the cancers in the earliest stage and the survival rate's almost perfect. That's, that's where we want to get to. But as a healthcare system, and we see ourselves as, as part of the healthcare system, we need to ask ourselves, how do we best use our clinicians? Because it has always been that a clinician's the only one capable of making these sort of, um, I'm not going to say diagnostic decisions because you confirm with histopathology, but let's just for the sake of, uh, of discussion, say diagnostic decisions. If we end up building technologies like what we have at Skin Analytics that can help sort of tease apart the basic, okay, here are the, the patients that very likely have a malignancy and get them into the clinicians, then the role of the clinicians is actually that really complex bit that an AI system is not going to be good at, which is, okay, these are complex cases. What is actually going on here? And then on top of that, like, what do we do about it? Because if you find a basal cell carcinoma in a 90-year-old patient, you're probably not going to cut the thing out because by the time it causes a problem for them, they have other other issues. And do you really want them to have a large sort of open wound that they have to heal in, in, uh, in their 90s? Like you have to weigh these things out. These are human decisions that need to be made by by humans. And, you know, I think that's the, the trick with medicine is it's such a human condition, a human discipline. But how much of it can we sort of carve out to be done by technology to improve the care pathways, not to try and automate them or try and remove responsibilities from clinicians, that's ultimately going to fail. So that's kind of how we see the world where we want to get to. That's a longer term journey. It's a, it's a sort of a difficult decision to have. You know, we need to build the confidence of the clinical community to start to get to have those discussions. And, and we're just not there yet. So where we see our role right now is, well, what are the tactical real world problems we have now that we can solve? And in the UK, where we're sort of doing quite, quite well, the, the real problem is that we have a commitment to see patients of suspicion of cancer within two weeks within our hospital specialist teams. And dermatology is the highest referring specialty. We're putting so much pressure on those teams that they're actually doing a reasonably good job of, of achieving that, although it's increasingly difficult with COVID, but at the cost of seeing patients that have non-life-threatening dermatology diseases. And um, there's a great book that's just been published um, called Under the Skin by a, a UK dermatologist, 
Um, and in it, the, the sort of opening of the book is, is this dermatologist describing how they spend their day seeing healthy people trying to find those suspicious lesions. And at the end of the day, they're rushing through seeing someone who has acne that unfortunately has been waiting for four months and now they're scarring or has psoriasis that's been driving them crazy and their quality of life is dramatically affected. And we're rushing the patients that need care because we're seeing a lot of healthy patients try and find those cancer patients. And it's the right decision with the resources we have. But we've got to be able to get to a better solution. So that's why we started by saying, okay, that's the problem. Can we deal with the two-week wait capacity? Can we build uh, ways to use the AI to help sort of triage out those patients that are clearly benign and then focus on those patients that are more likely to have malignancies? And, and that's kind of our sweet spot right now. But as the business sort of grows and evolves, you're right. We, we're going to start to look at new models where we can be used by a primary care doctor. Um, but then, you know, that... that presents a challenge because we ask primary care doctors to do a lot and we now ask them to do something else. And so increasingly what's popular with our NHS partners is to consider this idea of these community diagnostic centers where skin cancer can be treated in the same way that STDs are with the gum clinics. And you can signpost people to, to ways to get a, an assessment outside of the typical care pathway. And I think we'll see more of that as the NHS figures out how to deal with this huge outpatient uh, recovery program that they're working on. I've got two bad ideas I wanted to run by you and see why you didn't do them. And I thought that'd just be interesting to discuss. So one of them was that if I was you and I was just starting out making the algorithm, I might have thought, like you said earlier, to just drop it on the app store, let people just have a go, just big disclaimer, this isn't a diagnostic thing, just have some fun. And I think that would be an excellent viral marketing tool that might get people talking. And it might even kind of, you know, like be a grassroots thing where then people start using it, put some reverse pressure onto providers to then think, why aren't we offering this? Lots of newspaper, lots of press, and it'd be quite fun to use. So my question to you really is, on a serious note, like, have you thought of that kind of direct-to-consumer model of just releasing it out there and letting people just get their hands on it? So no idea is a bad idea, and we've talked about it. And, uh, and you know, I, I guess, guess from our point of view, yes, there's a way to get a lot of public attention to do that. And in, in many respects... Uh, it's viable the way our technology works and the performance numbers, we could do this. I think the challenge we've got is as a business, we would say, if we're going to let lay people use it, we're going to want to turn the sensitivity really high up because the last thing we want to do is give it to someone, then to check something and go, oh, I checked this with this technology and it's fine. I don't need to worry about it. And they're sitting on a, on a melanoma. So we want to turn the sensitivity right up. And then you have this population health question, which is you turn the sensitivity right up, even if you have a low uh, false positive rate, you're going to flood the healthcare system and create more of a pressure. And, you know, I think as I sort of started started with, we see ourselves as part of the healthcare system as, as trying to solve the problem for the healthcare system before solving the problem at a, at a sort of a population level. And so I think we would probably not solve the problem if we tried to go about it that way. Uh, but as, as the technology, you know, I think that what is interesting is that as we use it more, we can start to see the real power of the system to be able to do that. Uh, and then on top of that, you know, you're talking about right now, there's a single test. We look at an image. If we have a 96% sensitivity, that means we have about a 4% you know, miss rate, which is good on the industry side of things. But as you pointed out before, it's it, it, any misses are bad when you're a new technology. And so 
We want to get to a point where we have that test, but we also have a, a follow-up because we can do that pretty painlessly. And then we have a second independent test, which is looking at the way things have changed. And we actually have a pattern for how we do that. And then you have two independent tests that if they both have a small error rate, the error rate becomes much, much smaller on the back end. And so when we're ready to do that and make sure that we can be confident that we're not going to miss things, that's the time we'll probably push more into, into the consumer side of things. But then the final point is, and, and this probably resonates with you as a clinician, if, if our job is to go out and start doing assessments in, in the population, we won't do that until we have a viable path to solve the problem for the patient. We, we think in pathways, not in parts of the pathway. So I don't, I don't want to say, oh, hey, hey, cool, look, you know, there's something there. Good luck. See you later. Here's a report. Like, we want to make sure that they have a way to get to that next level of care because as a patient, you're always operating with less information than a clinician has because the clinician's trained and they know what the potential outcomes are. And so a patient with that less information either worries a lot and takes immediate action or doesn't know they need to worry enough and doesn't take action, either of those two outcomes is pretty stressful for, for the patient. So we're, we're kind of all in about making sure that we get to the point where that patient has a clear path to resolution. You'll know a lot more about this than I do, but I can imagine that one of the big barriers is, so up till now, we've probably spoken at a point where someone's recognized they have something suspicious on their skin and they've actually gone to their GP or they've gone to their dermatologist. I can imagine a big part of this is that people have these kinds of things. They have this weird mark on their skin. They just think, oh, I'll leave it for a few months and they never get checked out. And by the time they do, uh, bam, it's, it's a serious issue. Have you thought of ways of like, for example, you could have a, almost like a food truck on the street where you just go into it whilst you're doing your shopping and you get, you get it scanned and you know, you get referred if you need to or other ways of like kind of seeing the problem before even the person's really thought of recognizing it. Yeah, absolutely. I think, uh, I think this is one of the things that where we want to get to is really being able to have an impact on the total survival rate for skin cancer. And that's not actually a healthcare problem. Uh, one of our early advisors sort of introduced us to this concept of total patient delay. And uh, when you look at skin cancer, the delay from seeking help and getting care is actually relatively short compared to the delay of starting to worry about something and then seeking help. And I think when it comes to skin cancer, part of the problem is that, you know, you're looking at something that's on your skin and you're trying to figure out has it changed and then on top of that you're trying to work out whether or not it is serious enough with no other symptoms to go and speak to a clinician about and being very british uh there was some research done that sort of people were saying things like oh i didn't want to waste the doctor's time uh because they didn't have enough you know if you've got a headache or pain you're going to go solve that problem but with skin it's the barrier to accessing care is quite high and then when you layer and top the demand on our primary care services, it makes it even higher because you have to be willing to wait two or three weeks to see a doctor. And if you're waiting two or three weeks, you know you're doing that because the demand on the doctor is high. So it loops you back into, have I got enough evidence to do this? So ultimately, you know, we think that the, the real shift in skin cancer outcomes is going to come from being able to, act, to make it so frictionless that you can access care faster. And that's what our ambition is. Um, but we have to figure out this clinical part first and we have to make sure that clinicians are comfortable in the role that we play uh, because we're going to need their support. Again, going back to that point earlier, we're saying we want to make sure that we have the pathway, what happens next, sorted out for the patient. Uh, so we need to do it with the, the healthcare system. So that's a future future goal of ours. The other bad idea I wanted to ask you about was there's this whole emerging field of like wearable tech, right? 
And we've seen things like uh, the aura ring or whatever. And then I think there's new things like clothes, which can detect your heart rate and monitor those kinds of things. But I wonder if in 10, 20 years, there'll be integration of things like skin analytics into your clothing. So there'll be some kind of, maybe not even an image, but maybe some kind of uh, marker that's given off by cancers that then your clothing actually detects. So I don't know. I, I wonder if you'll end up pivoting into something that's not image-based, like whether there'll be other markers you'll start looking at. Yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's definitely a fascinating area. And, um, you know, I think even just on the image-based things, you could have it so that your mirrors are like, uh, you know, constantly oh, yeah. scanning and sort of picking out these things so you're not actively... That's a better idea, yeah. Yeah, although it's still a little bit creepy though. <laughs> you know, you're, you're, I mean, I still struggle sometimes thinking that my phone has uh, like all these pictures on me because the camera's always on just in case I want to unlock it. Um, so, you know, there's a few things to, to work through in terms of where the boundaries are with computers and humans. But but I think there is, there's a, you know, a huge opportunity to make this more part of our life. But... I think the path to do that is is relatively long because it, it's a, just a really complex area, and it's a you know diagnostics are, are complex in the sense that you know these last few percentage points of of diagnostic accuracy come with a huge amount of work, and um, you know the, the more information that we get from a high quality image can be the difference between being able to find something versus not being able to find something. So we keep our eye on it. We're constantly sort of thinking about where is this going, and and you know the the there's lots of sort of liquid biopsy ideas out there and sort of genetic biomarkers, which we think are great. But at the moment, their their performance isn't high enough to be uh, competitive from a performance perspective. And their cost isn't, you know, because you need a lab to develop a lot of these things or to process a lot of these things. So the cost and the time is struggling to compete with a with an AI model where your cost is virtually nothing and your time is instantaneous. So, you know, I think it's going to be a while yet before the, the wheel of innovation turns beyond image uh, from our point of view in skin cancer. But we are definitely constantly thinking about it because I think there's some really cool things that will happen in the future. I want to ask two questions that are basically the same question, but just feel free to uh, answer whichever one you prefer. And that was in 10 years time, if skin analytics is a huge success, what the world looks like, or B, what your 10x goals are, what the really ambitious moonshot kind of future would look like for you? You know what? I, I just think there is so much scope to use technology like ours to redesign how we do healthcare, or specifically for us in the, in the first instance, dermatology. And I think if you started from scratch and said, okay, we've got these technologies now, how do we design dermatology services? Like where where are the points that you really need humans to be involved and oversee it to make sure that you've got a great outcome for, for patients? Uh, and I, I think we want to be on the, the vanguard of that. I, you know, I, I want us to be um, almost the, the sort of digital primary care for dermatology. So we're bringing a specialist function to be the front door of care uh, around the world for all of dermatology. And to do that with our dermatologists uh, so that we design it in a way that is just hugely more efficient for them. So I'll, I'll give you another example. You know, we obviously work in skin cancer, and I think we've talked quite a lot about the, the benefits of that. But if you look at something like acne, you know, quite often, uh, you know, patients come in and, and are sort of laddered up different treatments until they get to to the outcomes. And, and you know, the laddering up the treatments is difficult when you can only see a patient every six weeks or so. And, and you know, that's that's quite a regular sort of visit in the, the sort of dermatologist's current workload. But not all of that needs to be – you could automate a lot of that. You could say, you know, is this patient responding to that treatment? Instead of waiting for six weeks and taking a point snap of where were they six weeks ago, where are they now, and relying on your memory or an image that you've taken, you could be collecting that continuously and saying, okay, well, we know – 
we know this patient's responding to treatment. So great, we, we know that we don't need to see this patient again unless we're not getting to the outcome we expect. And much faster, we can say, well, hang on, this patient isn't responding to treatment. We'll, we'll ladder them up to the point where, for example, they might be on Rakuten or something like that, which is, is something that is quite intensive management from a patient point of view to make sure that you're, uh, you know, there's not sort of unintended pregnancies or, you know, your blood works and it doesn't go strange. And so, you know, I think there's a huge opportunity in, in a number of different areas in a different way to the way we solve it with skin cancer that you can really drive the efficiency for a dermatologist and get them to the point where they can deliver the care they really want to deliver and solve patients' problems sooner. And given that dermatology is just such a massive part of clinical care, and you know, one in five appointments involves something to do with the skin, it, it feels like a huge opportunity to, to really use technology to show uh, healthcare about how you could do it differently. Have there been any other general habits or ways you like to approach things that you think have been helpful for your career? No. <laughs> I, no, I just, I, I'm, I'm a, I'm a real believer that the, that you know, we we tend to get sample size of one, and we try and draw information out of it, and say, oh, you know, you know, people do this, and then they do well because they've done this, and I just, I don't think that's true. I think the the one thing that I see in every entrepreneur that I've I've worked with is is a resilience. It's the ability to be keep getting back up when you've been knocked down and you need to do that a million times to grow a business. But apart from that, there's not just, a, there's not been any other thing that I've seen. So, you know, people like, I get up at 5am and I work out and then I do my emails and I make sure I don't have an inbox that has more than five unread emails. And like, I've just heard a million things and I don't see any of them making any difference. I think it's just down to, you know, be yourself uh, be resilient and uh, and and do what you think's right and and try and try and try your best to achieve what you're setting out to achieve. Uh, that's it, really. <laughs> well, let me let me ask you the reverse of that. Is there anything that you are surprisingly bad at that you think, or that you're surprised that you've got away with this, getting this far? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, there's lots of things. So uh, um, I don't think we want to dive into the uh, the insecurities of a founder. That there's a million of them. You know, we feel like we're imposters half the time. You know, there's there's uh, there's a lot, but but I, I think, you know, one thing that, that stands out for me is that uh, I'm a, a big picture person. I get excited by what we can do. I get, I get excited about talking about people with people about all this future that we're going to create. And then I find it very difficult to get down into the detail of, okay, then to deliver this, we're going to need to do this, these five things in this order, and we're going to phase it in this way, and we're going to staff it in this way. Uh, so I'm, I've been surprised that I've been able to get this far just with just energy to push for this, this new future we're trying to build. And I'm being really lucky that we've got some great people in the company who can come and pick up the pieces and say, okay, this is how we're going to make this happen. You know, I think uh, I think in many entrepreneurs probably have this trait, uh, and uh, but I'm still surprised that we've got so far. And in, given how much our business is built on detail, uh, I've been surprised at how far we've gotten with someone like me who's who's not great at it. I hope you enjoyed that episode. You can find all my links by going to bigpicturemedicine.co.uk. And if you've been enjoying the podcast, then please consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. And by the way, some of these episodes are now available in video format on Spotify and on YouTube. Thanks for listening.